This week I read a, an Alistair Begg quote that said, if you want to understand a church's theology, you need to hear them sing. And uh, what a blessing it is every Sunday to sing God's truth, to hear God's truth read, and to hear his truth preached every Sunday. What Amen. a blessing. Amen. Amen. A New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, to, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our sermon text this morning is 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Gerald. And thank you, Ray, for uh, filling in for Ty today. What a great choice of songs. I'm so thankful you sang that musical prayer, that beautiful musical prayer of uh, asking God to speak to us today. And I love that one right before the sermon. So thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Um, we begin a new uh, study today in uh, a new book, Second Peter, following right on the heels of our completion of First Peter last week. And these first two verses uh, may look uh, pretty insignificant, uh, but man, it's chock full of stuff, and so much so that we'll be two weeks on this uh, probably. Uh, Two weeks for, at least, uh, and maybe more, but uh, there's some statements and phrases in here that, uh, that uh, deserve our unpacking and our wrestling with and thinking about and pondering deeply. So I hope you'll do that with me uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. We could accurately say that uh, this letter represents Peter's last words to the church of Jesus Christ. They come with warnings. They come with reminders. They come with promises. Uh, it is written to the, unlike 1 Peter, where we saw a specific group of people to those that were scattered in the different regions, this has no geographical notation in it. It is written to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. In other words, those who share in Peter's faith. In other words, this is a letter to all Christians in general. And that includes us, as is the whole Bible. But uh, um, 
the, the emphasis here is this is, for, this is for everybody. This is not just to a select group of people. Now, some commentators will say, since it followed 1 Peter and 1 Peter named a group, it's probably to the same group. Well, maybe. But I, I just like the thought of this is a general letter to all people of faith. And so that definitely includes those of you and myself who are saved that are here today. Scholars believe the letter was written around 66 A.D. and that Peter was martyred approximately one year later. Um, As Peter saw the increasing persecution of his fellow believers under the cruel reign of Emperor Nero, the Lord made it known to him that his death was near. How do we know that? Well, Peter tells us that. We're not at verse 12 12 yet, but just look down there real quick, and we'll see that Peter knew what was coming. Verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body, in other words, my death, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may may be able at any time to recall these things. So these are really the last words of of a man that knows his pilgrimage on this earth is about over. And he wants the people that are together with him in this pilgrimage to remember some things and to know some things and to be reminded of some very important things and to be encouraged and exhorted in the faith. Chuck Swindle describes the letter like this, quote, Brief but powerful, 2 Peter serves as his last written word to the churches and a permanent testament of Peter's practical teachings. Because of his inevitable passing and the imminent threat of false teachers, Peter wants to stir up their memories of sound teaching, spur them on to diligence in the faith, and shore up the biblical foundations of their beliefs and practice. Like a last will and testament to believers of every generation, Peter writes this rapid-fire, urgent reminder to warn against false doctrine and moral compromise in the last days. And seeing the days that we live in, I believe this is a pretty timely letter for all of us. If we were to do a summary overview of the letter as part of our preview here this morning, I believe we would see these major themes. In chapter 1... We would see an exhortation to spiritual maturity and growth in grace with a call to make one's election sure. Be sure you're born again. Be sure you were saved. The focus in chapter 1 would be on looking within and avoiding corruption of the heart. In chapter 2, I believe we will see an emphasis on the warnings against false teachers and how to recognize them. The focus in that chapter will be looking back 
and avoiding doctrinal compromise. And then in the last chapter, chapter 3, the emphasis will be on encouragement regarding Christ's promised return and how we should live in light of this sure and certain event. The focus in that chapter will be on looking ahead, looking forward, and dealing with prophetic concerns. So in this final inspired communication from the great Apostle Peter that we can all identify with, uh, especially because of his failures and shortcomings and speaking before thinking and often putting his foot in his mouth and rebuking Jesus. You know, we could do his history and, and really be encouraged because it sounds a lot like the things that we do sometimes. But in this final inspired communication from this saved by grace apostle, just like all of us who share in the same faith, I believe Peter is obeying Moses' instructions in Psalm 90, verse 12, where Moses instructed us, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I believe Peter is making his final days count by using them to encourage and warn and exhort and teach his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ right up to the very end. Man, that's how I want to end my life. That is how I want to end my life. So let's study this great letter together. We begin with the first two verses. Two little verses, but so much is here. Let's pray and ask as we sang while ago for the Lord to speak to us. Father, incline our hearts to your word. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things. Give us understanding that we might grow in grace and knowledge and satisfy us. Satisfy us by your words today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in the first letter, if you remember, Peter introduced himself simply as Peter. Here we have Simeon Peter. You know, get a little wrinkle there because it's not Simon Peter. That's what we're used to. But Simeon Peter. We have his old name. Uh, the Hebraic spelling of it. The Hebrew spelling of it. And his new name. Well, why? Why is that? Well, I'd love to really impress you and, and tell you that our I'd know for certain why, but I don't. I don't, and none, none of the people I read do either. And so that's one of those, we can add that to the list of questions we can ask Peter when we get to heaven and see him personally. Again, Simeon is the Hebraic spelling of Simon. So it's the same guy, just a different spelling. Uh, we see this spelling one other time, only one other time in the Bible in Acts 15, 14, where they're having the meeting and, and uh, James refers to him as Simeon. And so uh, Peter, as we all know, is the name Jesus gave him. Uh, Petros, rock, meaning rock. Jesus saw Simon, or Simeon, saw what he would become, a rock. Shifting Simon became 
Solid rock Peter. Solid, stable. Part of the foundation of the church that Ephesians 2 talks about. We're built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone of that foundation. The uh, theologian David Helm suggests that Peter uses, again, suggests, nobody knows, okay, speculating here. So you can, as you know, you know, take it, leave it, flush it, or chunk it. But David Helm speculates uh, that Peter uses his old and new name here because, quote, he wants us to know that we are meeting the whole man. He goes on, using both names conveys the life experience of one who isn't afraid to wed together the man as I was born and I am the man I am today because of the gracious influence of Jesus. So Peter is possibly reminding us and saying to us by starting the letter like this, I once was Simeon. Now I'm Peter. Kind of like saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I used to be Simeon, the one dead in sin. And now I'm Peter, saved by grace and growing as the rock that Jesus called me to be. Maybe, beautiful thought, something to ponder. I once was Simeon, now I'm Peter. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And every Christian in this room and every Christian on the planet has that same testimony. No matter what the details might be and how God saved you, we would all have that testimony. I used to be lost. Why? Because nobody's born saved, right? We're born dead in trespasses and sins. We're all born in the same state, the same hopeless, desperate state. And then Jesus intervenes, God intervenes, takes out the heart of flesh, puts in, uh, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh, the soft, moldable, teachable heart, and grows us in the grace and knowledge of himself. That's why Peter is talking about this faith of the, you know, the same standing, uh, of equal standing. We're all born dead in sin. We're all saved the same way by the precious blood of Jesus. So, Peter knows the guilt and condemnation that he has been saved from when he was Simeon and the grace and forgiveness of his wonderful Savior, who named him Peter. Now, the big question this morning is, do you know that? Do you know the guilt and condemnation that you've been saved from? Do you know the grace and forgiveness of Jesus? For if not, today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. So, we see the subtle message, possibly, of the apostle's name. We once were lost. We once used to be this. And now, because of Jesus, we are this. 
Number three on your sermon sheet, if you're using the sheet this morning, we see the gentle reminder of Peter's titles. Simeon Peter, a servant, notice he says that first, and apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't throw apostle out there first. He starts with servant. Kind of reminds me of the first letter, remember, in chapter 5, how he addressed the elders. He didn't say, uh, okay, this is Apostle Peter, and I need to uh, address you underlings, okay? No, he referred to himself as a fellow elder. He put himself on equal standing with the elders that he was speaking to, a real show of humility. Well, we see him doing it again here. We see him once again expressing his humility by calling himself a servant. And this time, instead of just identifying with elders, he's identifying with every believer, right? Because we're all called to be servants. Have this mind in yourself, right, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and made himself a servant, taking on the likeness of of human flesh, remember? We're all to have that mind. We're all to have that attitude. We're all to have the servant heart of Jesus. And Peter is starting his letter with that. He reminds us that when God raises one up to be a leader, we don't drop the title servant. We don't, we don't put the title servant in the closet. Leaders are still to be servants. And Peter reminds us of that. Fourth, we see the glorious beauty of our precious faith in the latter half of verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is who the letter is written to. So here we have something else we all have in common. Not only are we all to be servants, we have our faith in common. Our faith is is on equal standing. We are all saved by grace through the same faith. And Peter gives us three beautiful things in this one verse about our precious faith, this faith that is given to us by God by the payment of the blood of Jesus. First, it is received freely. It is received freely. Freely. We see that in the word that is translated here in the ESV as obtained. Obtained. The meaning, the Greek meaning of the Greek word is, to, the primary meaning is to receive. Simply to receive. Remember Paul's words in, in uh, one of his letters to the Corinthians. I think it was 2 Corinthians 4-7 or 1 Corinthians 4-7. What have you received uh, or what do you have that you did not receive? Everything. Everything. Including our faith. It means to be chosen by lot, to be given by allotment, to gain by divine will. The word points us to the divine source of our salvation. In other words, as we all know, as we've been taught here forever since we started, saving faith is a gift from God. 
It's not something we ramp up from inside ourselves. It's not something we earn, work to earn or merit. It's a total free gift. Bottom line, we had nothing to do with receiving it. John MacArthur says of this word obtained, he says, clearly it refers to something not obtained by human effort or based on personal worthiness, but issued from God's sovereign purpose. Beloved, listen, we are saved. All of you that are here today that are, that are already saved, already Christian, you are saved because God wanted to save you. Not because you wanted to be saved. Because we didn't want to be saved. We were born, yes, according to Scripture, hating God. We loved being Lord of our own lives. But God, as Ephesians 2 tells us, in His rich mercy, moved in amazing grace opened our spiritual eyes, and gave life to our dead, self-loving hearts. He literally raised us from spiritual death, just like he raised his son from physical death. Um, We see a lot of times these evangelistic uh, tracks, and I remember one where It pictured people out in the ocean uh, drowning and flailing around and 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 reaching up and you know and and the church was pictured as like this island and uh, we were encouraged to you know uh, toss the uh, the life boy of uh, uh, of the gospel to these people that are out there flailing around and reaching up and treading water. Listen, listen, you weren't treading water, okay? You weren't flailing around in the ocean of your lostness, and neither was I, okay? I'm speaking to myself. Listen, we were at the bottom of the ocean. We were already blue. We were not breathing, and we had no life in ourselves, spiritually speaking. We weren't flailing around spiritually, We weren't seeking for the island, trying to get to the island. No, we were at the bottom of the ocean of our sin, dead, dead, not breathing, no life. And God came to us and lifted us up and breathed life into our dead spiritual corpse. That's what the word obtained is. That's the picture it's painting for us. Free gift of God. We were granted the faith to believe in Jesus. Hallelujah. So this faith, this like faith that we all share, even, yes, even with the Apostle Peter, is received freely. Secondly, it is measured equally. It is measured equally of equal standing with ours. Okay, who's the ours? Well, ours... Uh, Peter is referring to a group that he's a part of. I guess it could be Jews. Peter being a Jew, possibly he's focusing on Gentiles here. 
And he's saying to Gentiles, okay, you've received the same faith as we Jews. I don't think that's what it is. I think the hours is referring to his fellow apostles. I think he's talking about the apostles. You, you've, you, you regular Joes and Josephines, you've received the same faith as us apostles. The guys who saw Jesus alive, who fellowshiped with him, who walked with him, were there for his resurrection. Uh, you, you've got the same faith that we do. So I, th- I think that's what the hours is referring to. Again, we can talk about it in heaven when we see, when we see Peter. Um, but here's what's neat about it. The apostle Peter and all these heroes of the faith that we read about in Scripture, you know, Paul and Daniel and all these guys that we put up there on the pedestals, uh, they, they did not receive a more uh, powerful or stronger faith than I did, okay? Nor nor. Did they receive a stronger faith than you? Every Christian is granted the same faith to believe in Jesus. There is not an elite faith, you know, a supercharged faith for the apostles and a common faith for the rest of us. We're all equally dead in sin. There's not a faith for the elders and a run-of-the-mill faith for rank-and-file church members. No, it's equal. It's of equal standing. It's all the same. Our faith as 21st century Christians is the same faith as those who walked with Jesus and witnessed his glorious resurrection. Our faith is equal to that of our Lord's first and closest followers. Now just think about that this week. Ponder that this week. You have the same faith as Peter, the same faith as Paul, the same faith as David, the same faith as Daniel, the same faith. It's of equal standing. And this is a very good thing. Good thing. Different gifts. Okay? That's what makes the body of Christ the body of Christ. That's how we're able to function together. Different gifts, but one faith. Ephesians 4 makes it very clear. Verses 4 to 6, listen, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. One faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One more quick thought on this point. The faith of every believer whether an apostle or a child, whether an old believer or a new believer, is paid for by the same price. We sang about it, the precious blood of Jesus. It cost Jesus the same thing, to save Peter and to save me. And the same is true for you. So this, this precious faith, this beautiful faith, it's received freely. It's measured equally. And thirdly, it is imputed sacrificially. It is imputed sacrificially. You say, well, but I don't see the word imputed in this verse. Uh, Well, that's why it's going to take us two weeks to talk about this. Because the end of verse 1 
We read, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, and here's the key phrase, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness. Our faith is obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, don't glance over this. Don't, don't speed by this. This is a huge statement, and we're not going to rush past it. In fact, I'm planning on unpacking it more next week with a message just on this point. I'm going to kind of introduce this and then move on to the rest of your sermon sheet here, but we're going to come back to this. Okay, but here's the main thing I want to say about this this morning. Without the righteousness of Christ, who is God, we cannot be saved. Let me say that again. Without the righteousness of Christ, we cannot be saved. Theologians call this an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is outside of ourselves, that must be credited to our spiritual account. It's not within us. We can't muster it up. We can't come close to it. Why? The Bible says there's none righteous. No, and in case we miss that, Paul adds, no, not one. Universal negative. No one is righteous and no one does righteous things in their physical birth or as a result of their physical birth. None righteous, no, not one. So we needed, if we were going to be able to stand before God and and make it into, into glory, we were going to need Another righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves that must be granted to us. And that is, that is exactly what God does when he gives us new birth. So let me give you a few texts to ponder for next Sunday. Again, we're going to, I didn't want to unpack this point totally today because it's too much here because I got some more things to say about verse 2. But let me just give you some verses to ponder for next week. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, okay? The only righteous one, Jesus, for all the unrighteous people, us, that he might, why? Bring us to God. So without the righteousness, righteousness of Christ, we are not brought to God. Without the righteousness of Jesus, we cannot be saved. Jesus had to be totally righteous to pay for our unrighteousness by his death on the cross. Here's another one, Romans 1. We're getting close to Reformation month, next month, Reformation coming up in October. Here's one of the key texts from that era of church history. This was the text that opened Martin Luther's eyes and caused him to begin to take a stand for the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what's the it? Pointing back to the gospel. For in 
the gospel, the righteousness, there's our word, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not earned, not worked for, not mustered up. Is revealed from faith for faith. So for us to have faith, i.e. be saved, we've got to have this righteousness, this revealed righteousness. This is one of the key verses of, that sparked the Reformation. When Luther saw what this text was saying, he said it was like the gates of paradise had been opened to him because all of his life he'd been striving and working and toiling and straining to make himself righteous. You can read about all the things he did in the monastery, you know, beating himself, sitting out in the cold with no clothes on, just doing all these kind of crazy things to to make himself righteous. And it never worked and it was never going to work and it never will work. This righteousness is revealed and given to us. The righteousness of God is not something we strive to attain. It is something that is revealed to us in the gospel and imputed to us by grace. Here's another 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, To be sin, who knew no sin. So the one who knew no sin and never sinned in thought, word, or deed. (laughs) That always blows me away. In thought, really? In thought, word, and deed. Became sin. So that, purpose clause, in him we might become, not earn, not work for, not muster up, we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. What a deal. What a deal. Why would you turn that down? Why would you turn that down? I know the theological reason for it. You would turn it down because you're blind. Because you have a dead heart. If there's any lost here today, I hope there's not. But that's why you turn it down. We we know the theological answer to that. Because who with with the right heart would turn that down? Jesus takes our sin on himself, is nailed to the cross, Condemning our sin, putting it to death, and we receive as a gift his perfect righteousness so that when we die and stand before God, we will hear, enter into the joy of your master. Too good. Today's the day of salvation for some of you. Today's the day to receive that. I pray God will work in your heart. And then Philippians 3, 8, 9. Boy, this, it doesn't get much clearer than this one. Indeed, Paul is speaking. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Hear what he's saying? Not having a righteousness of my own that I earn by obeying the law. But, conjunction of contrast, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, get the pronoun here, from God. Not pronoun, what's that? That's not a pronoun. What is, what, where's my English person? That's a preposition. Thank you, preposition. Preposition, from God. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And we're going to unpack more of this next week. I want to hammer this home because it's been over, it's been about 12 years since we studied this when we went through Romans. And a lot of you weren't with us then. We got to hit this again. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Peter just says it in passing there. uh, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So your homework for next week is to read and ponder and meditate on Romans 3, 21 through 26. In those Six verses. The word righteousness is repeated five times. It's the core of the gospel. So I want you to read that. Be ready for next week as we continue to unpack this huge, unbelievable, incomprehensible, beautiful, wonderful truth of the gospel. So let's move on here. In the, at the end of verse 1, we see the majestic deity of our perfect Savior. By the righteousness, look look how he says it, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we have one of the strongest statements in Scripture of the deity of Jesus. One commentator said, the clearest place in the New Testament where the Greek word theos for God is applied to Jesus. Very clear, very straightforward. And I've always loved the C.S. Lewis quote that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with from Mere Christianity, which says it so well. It's not on your sheet. This was a Saturday edition. So I know I've recited this before to you. So one more time, here we go. C.S. Lewis on who do you say Jesus is? Good moral teacher, not an option. Great God, not an option. Three options for Jesus. He knew he wasn't God, but said he was. Liar. He thought he was God, but wasn't. Lunatic. Or he was God. He's Lord. Here's how Lewis says it. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, 
on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. Amen. Uh, Finally, we see the vital lesson in verse 2. The vital lesson of a profound prayer. So Peter, in verse 2, offers up this brief little prayer. Again, Don't rush by this. I I couldn't believe how much was packed in these two little verses. Don't rush by this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Great prayer. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for praying for us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, what a great prayer. And we should all be praying that. For one another. One of the many things I love about the Bible, it gives us great prayers. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time thinking up words of my own. You may notice that in my Friday email, okay? A lot of it is scripture, and that's good praying. I want to encourage you in that, okay? But please note, again, it'd be easy to skim by this. Please note how God answers this prayer. Please don't miss this. Don't rush by this and write it off as some standard or ordinary greeting of a New Testament letter. Look how God answers it. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You say, what are you talking about? Well, here's the principle. Heavy-duty principle. Okay, don't doze off. We're almost done. You hang with me. Heavy-duty principle. Our grace and our peace are multiplied become stronger and more pervasive, they increasingly dominate our lives as we grow in the knowledge of God. This is huge. This is huge. Grace and peace don't come automatically. They don't come by osmosis, okay? They grow, they are multiplied in the knowledge of God. Do you see that? This is so, so important. And as we will see as we continue in this letter, knowledge is one of the main themes of this little letter, this brief little letter. And there there are even bookends, so to speak. He begins the letter with it in verse 2 and ends the letter with it in Chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and for eternity. Our kids' rockers can sing that for you. That's one of their favorites. They love to get down on the floor and picture themselves growing. They get growing, like little, little sprouts, just growing up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. The point of emphasis here is this, beloved. Hang with me now. The increase of grace and peace in the life of a believer is vitally connected 
to the believer's knowledge of God, which increases, right, as we grow, as we get older. Should be, okay? Bob Utley said this, quote, the grace and peace are given by God, passive voice, something we receive through an experiential knowledge of both himself and his son. Let's say it like this. The better we know God, the more we will experience his grace and peace. They're vitally connected. That's why a lot of surface Christians don't have grace and peace, especially peace. Always worried, always anxious, because they don't know God very well. They're content to stop at that surface level of Christianity, if they're even there. The grace that is amazing and the peace that passes all understanding will be multiplied to us as our knowledge of God increases. That's exactly what the verse is saying. This is why theology is so important. Okay? This is why we don't back off the hard things, the difficult things with our kids and our youth. This is why we go through the confession of faith with our solid rockers. Theology is so important. Theology, knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is so vital. The knowledge of Jesus is so vital. And listen, we're not talking about knowing about God. We are talking about knowing God. The Greek here points to that. We'll get to that word in just a minute. This is how Jesus defined eternal life, right? In John 17, 3. This is eternal life. This is the life that is chock full of grace and peace that you know God and Jesus whom he has sent. And the Greek word that's translated knowledge, that's what this is communicating to us. It's the Greek word epinosis. In other words, it's the next level up from gnosis. Gnosis can, is also translated knowledge. Epinosis is a, a, an advanced knowledge. Swindle says this, similar to the more general term for knowledge, gnosis, this term refers to true or precise knowledge. This deeper knowledge refers not to mere intellectual awareness. You know, I know about God. I know, I know God's up there somewhere. Or theoretical knowledge, but to heart knowledge. Believers, true believers, do not know only about God. They have an intimate, personal, and I would add growing knowledge of God. Of God. A knowledge that can deepen through spiritual growth. John MacArthur said it like this. It is a strengthened form of the basic Greek word for knowledge. It conveys the idea of a full, rich, thorough knowledge involving a degree of intimate understanding of a specific subject. And the subject here, of course, being God himself and his one and only son, Jesus. So, as we move to a close, examine yourself. We're fixing to come to the table, okay? Let's examine ourselves. 
Do you know stuff about God? Do you have theological and theoretical facts in your head? Are you content with simply knowing about the one who created you? Or do you know God? Do you know God? And do you know Jesus in a personal, intimate way? And is that knowledge growing, resulting in a fuller realization of the grace that you didn't deserve and a more profound peace when the fiery trials that Peter talked about in his first letter hit you right in the face? Is God, who is the awesome creator, is he your Abba Father? In addition to being your death-conquering Savior and reigning King, is Jesus your most precious friend? Because this is what it's all about. Listen, increasing knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus, is the only way that grace and peace is multiplied to us, expanded, becoming greater, increasing. Let's just cut right to the chase, okay? If you're never reading your Bible and never pondering it and never studying it and you're constantly dozing off during preaching and you're never reading other books to help you understand this book and you're constantly putting worldly things in, high, in a higher priority than the things of God, guess what? You will not experience multiplied grace and peace. You just won't. You just won't. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you might not be, okay? Because true Christians grow. True Christians grow. Their faith is strengthened day by day, month by month, year by year. Their faith strengthens over time. Yeah, we're all saved by the same faith. This doesn't contradict what, I'm sa- what I said at the beginning of the, of the message. We're all saved by the same faith. But that faith is strengthened as God grows us, which results in an increased realization of God's amazing grace and a, his peace that passes all understanding. Listen, listen carefully. When the, hard time come, when the hard times come, and they will, if you just know about God... You will panic. When trials come and you're not growing in your knowledge of God, you will curl up in the permanent fetal position. When discouragement comes and you don't know God, you don't know Jesus as the friend of sinners who walks with you through the valleys, 
you will shrink back. When your best friend dies, you will not handle it as a believer in the crucified and risen Christ should, but you will respond like the world. You will grieve with no hope. When the storms of life rage and you don't know God, you will be swamped spiritually. Here's how Jesus says it. These are Jesus' words. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be, be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Dear church family, I cannot overemphasize the vital importance of knowing God. Of growing in your knowledge of God. We will never arrive in perfect knowledge. Why? Mr. Trey can tell you. Because God is incomprehensible. Right, Trey? He's incomprehensible, isn't he? We'll never arrive in the perfect knowledge of God. God doesn't expect that. He does expect us to grow in it. And that's what prepares us to live in this world. This sin-cursed, death-ridden, evil age. It's the only way. It's the only way. And our Heavenly Father loves us enough to give us a book to make that happen. But again, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You're not going to stick the Bible under your pillow at night and go to sleep and hope everything seeps into your head. No, you've got to read it. You've got to read it, and you've got to hear it preached. And you've got to hear it taught. And you've got to be attentive to it, and you can't go to sleep. You've got to pay attention. How many times in the past few Months have we seen the phrase, be watchful, be sober-minded, things like this, be awake, be aware. Bottom line, so much more I could say that I'm going to say next week maybe if I'm here. Bottom line, the person that knows God and is growing in that knowledge is a person of the book, a person of the word. A person who loves the word. A person who is standing firm on the truth of the word of God. A person who is constantly saying like the psalmist, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. And beloved, there are no shortcuts. Let's pray. Father, give us an unexplainable from a human standpoint hunger for your word that we might grow 
in our knowledge of you so that your grace and your peace would be multiplied to us. Please do that, Father. Please do that for my church family. Give every member, every member, every saved person an increasing hunger to know you by knowing your word. Please do that. And those that are here today that have no hunger, they have no yearning, they have no longing to know you better, please save them. Please save them now, right now. Please do that. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.